0: Thank you for joining me on Tell Me Something Good About Retail, the podcast of The Retail Doctor. I'm Bob Fibbs, your host, and you can find out more about me by going to retaildoc.com. That's r e t a i l d o c.com, where you can find out on the authority on brick and mortar retail across the world working with some of the biggest brands, all the way down to the smallest mom and pops. You'll find resources there about personality styles, retail sales tips, visual merchandising, and more. And you'll also find me on Facebook as The Retail Doctor. I have a significant LinkedIn following as well as Twitter. But that's not what you're here for today. Today is our final episode of the second season. So let's get to our guest. Our final episode features a very special guest, the author of Biology, Truth and Lies About Why We Buy, Brand Washed, Tricks Companies Use to Manipulate Our Minds and Persuade Us to Buy, and the author of Small Data, The Tiny Clues That Uncover Huge Trends. My guest for the final episode of my second season of the podcast is Martin Lindstrom, the resource for hundreds of brands around the world trying to make their messages memorable. Let's go. my guest today is a time magazine influential 100 honoree his books include biology truth and lies about why we buy brand washed tricks company used to manipulate our minds and persuade us to buy and of course his most recent small data the tiny clues that uncover huge trends he's the resource for hundreds of brands around the world trying to make their messages memorable it is my pleasure to welcome martin lindstrom
1: well thank you for being on your show it's a great honor
0: Well, you're generous. I understand now from the time you were 12, you were interested in Lego and even received a green brick. So in a (laughs) brief, I mean, it's a big story for yours, but can you tell us about that and how small data informed your advice to Lego later on?
1: Well, listen, this is a crazy story. You're absolutely right.
0: When I was 12 years of age, I loved Lego.
1: But I was probably a pretty unusual kid, so I decided to build my own Legoland in the backyard of my mom and dad's garden. And The only problem was that no one showed up except my mom and my dad, which really was the lowest point of my career, I guess. So I teamed up with a local print office whom sponsored me, and they put an ad in the paper. And guess what? Two days later, I had 131 visitors coming to my Legoland, there's just one problem. Uh, Visitor number 130 and visitor number 131 were the lawyers from Lego (laughs) suing me. (laughs) And they said, well, that's our brand. And I said, what is a brand? I mean, I was 12 years old back then. Um, So uh, they actually did something pretty unusual. Uh, Lego said, listen, instead of us being mean, uh, why don't we employ you? So I, I probably as one of the first kids ever, if not the first in the world, I got a a job at Lego when I was 12 years old and was pendling between school and the Lego factory in Denmark. And uh, what was really fascinating about this was that Lego had a philosophy. The philosophy was that if we want to understand the consumer, we need to live with them, And that really was the foundation for my work with Lego later on and basically what this book is all about. It's the idea of how you need to understand the consumer at a much deeper level than what we do today in order to create and craft products and services, uh, which really means a lot for people rather than, you know, as it is today where sometimes it's relevant and most of the time it's not. Right.
0: Well, and we'll get to that in just a sec. I wanted to go back to one of your earlier books, one of the hallmarks of business books, Biology, you in that book, you talked about our emotional DNA as buyers, and uh, and also in that book that we aren't always logical about our shopping choices. So, um, with those uh, contrasts, um, how do how do we resolve that? How how is it possible? I know you live with people forever. You go and study seven thousand families, and you yeah. you look at a lot of different things. But how how can um, we? We understand that a little better, I guess, because when I read you, it all makes perfect sense. But let's face it, there's not many experts out there to do that for a brand. So understand that consumer. Can you fill us in a bit? or?
1: Absolutely. And it's a very good question. Remember that 85% of everything you and I do every day is irrational. That means only 15% is rational. And let me just give you an example. And, and be honest, right now, have you tried that? You're watching television, and you grab your remote control. You want to change channel, and uh, it's flat for batteries. So you press extra hard to squeeze the last drop of battery out of that remote control. <laughs> and I mean, yes, I think we all tried it. <laughs> uh, I need really to tell you, it's deeply irrational, right? And I think, I think. What's so fascinating about us human beings, that we want to wrap everything into a rational paper somehow. I mean, just think about the stock exchange, think about trade, think about everything, how emotions are driving us and where there's not a lot of rational stuff. Think about just falling in love. I mean, it's the most irrational thing on planet Earth. Um, So... What we tried to do when I wrote the book Biology was to scan consumers' brains. And we used something called fMRI, which is probably the most sophisticated brain uh, scanning technology available in our, in, in our world today. And um, So we scanned 2,000 respondents. And, and one of the things we discovered from this is um, that we quite often are doing counterintuitive uh, things. Uh, so I'll tell you about a couple of things. Uh, one of them is, for example, that uh, you may recall when Pepsi came up with the Pepsi challenge back in the 70s and the 80s, and um, the conclusion was that everyone loves um, Pepsi. Um, sure, right, but how come Pepsi is not number one and number two today? Uh, well, the answer was discovered in one of these studies, which showed that when respondents were put into an fMRI scanner and they had a pipe uh, which allowed them to basically sample. Uh, one of the two colas um, while they were in the scanner, well, what was realized was that when people were blind testing substance A and substance B, as we call them in the research study, well, then when people sampled A, they loved it, you know, way above substance B. But when the scientists entered the fMRI area and revealed that substance A was Pepsi and B was Coke, they the taste preference and then the brain literally changed uh, its mind and consumers say, Hey, I was wrong. I didn't prefer B. And this explains the essence of not only how irrational we are, but also the power of brands, the brands overwrite even our taste preference center and makes us lie to ourselves without us even being aware of it. So no. this is really the essence of why I think um, a famous retailer many many years ago said that, no, I, I know 50% of my marketing budget works. The problem is I don't know which 50% it is, and I think it's it, to some extent it still explains today why we are shooting in the in the in the blind, even though we do have all sorts of algorithms trying to prove all sorts of things. The reality is that most of the marketing money market is still wasted.
0: Well, you know, that's interesting too because in the age of um, you know, the presidential elections in America and Brexit, that yeah. polling said it's x and it was y and I know the Washington Post recently had a story and they uncovered that most of the people that voted Trump didn't tell their friends or family.
1: Yeah. So that's look, why. Exactly, that was fascinating. It, it absolutely fascinating and 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 I can 100% agree with that because we did a research study across um several states in the US up to the election and uh, picking up what we define as small data. So small data is what we define as seemingly insignificant observations you make in people's lives. And so we did this small data research study and actually did predict that Donald Trump would win the election. And I actually wrote an article about it in Time Magazine as well, uh, just before the, the official uh, election was taking place. And what we did notice was exactly that. We did notice that uh, people were somewhat embarrassed by the choice that it became very much a, a, a vote made in, in, uh, in Anonymous, in, in, in the dark. Um, and it was first when we really managed to penetrate uh, people's lives and understand their, their very sensitive topics. Ie being invited out in the garage or down in the basement where the flags and the posters were hanging, that we realised was almost like two scripts going on here. We had the official scripts, where quite often we would try that we would say voting for Hillary on the on the on the lawn outside the house, and we'll go down in the basement and there'll be oh, Donald no. Trump posters. I mean that just shows you how we have dual messaging going on, and that's yeah. the irrational part of our behaviour, right?
0: Well, absolutely, and um, you know. I've been working with an awful lot of technology companies and let's face it, everybody is saying it's all gonna be AI and everybody needs big data and um and you even say, I think in small data that big data is important, that it has to be balanced with uh, small data. Yeah. Um but but ultimately it it seems like we're being sold this bill of goods that there is this one answer up there that big data will solve it all. But yeah. I, I would imagine for a researcher like you, knowing what data is the correct data isn't that the hardest part
1: it is it's incredibly difficult and and there's sort of two things to say to this. The biggest problem today with um, data and in particular big data is that uh, big data is all about correlation. it's all about connecting dots. but you do need to have a hypothesis first what's is driving uh, what you're going to connect and and I think the best example took place in two thousand and twelve. And I'm sure you recall this case where Google were able to predict the flu outbreak 45 days What right. happened, right? And everyone thought it was amazing and they were able to inform the medical community about uh, vaccines well in advance. It was just wonderful news. The only problem was that exactly two years later, the Center for Disease Control analyzed the numbers. And at that stage, they had the real numbers. And the numbers showed that Google were tw- no, completely wrong. In fact, the numbers were twice of what they should have been. And the reason why is because you know people are typing in flu because the neighbors talk about flu and the kids are talking about it in school. And suddenly it becomes almost a viral uh, dimension. And the engineers had really not taken that into account. And so what Google cared about, and this is really important, what Google cared about was the correlation rather than the causation. And causation is the reason why it's the hypothesis, right? And and really, the causation is what I define as small data. So small data is where you find the hypothesis. That's where you spend time in consumer homes and identify where people are out of balance. And because that quite often leads you to a new opportunity, a new opportunity for brand or service. And once you have identified that, you can verify that by using big data. In our world today, because people are so obsessed with big data, they start with big data first. So they basically build hypotheses on things which can be completely wrong. And that's where we see things derailing.
0: It's funny you say that because I remember talking to a VP of Frito-Lay and she said, we know that uh, the person who is more likely to buy a pineapple is also uh, to uh, buy a toothbrush and a calling card. And she goes, but what does that tell us? You know, and I thought this is a few years ago, but it's that same thing. You know, once you get the uh, like anecdotal evidence, like, well, what do I do with that? So um, I want to switch switch uh, a little bit for you. You know, um, people listen to the podcast are various incarnations of brick and mortar retailers and private label is growing as retailers are trying to differentiate from the uh, competitors. Do you think that, um, like, legacy brands are still important? Are, are retailers, you know, cutting them off to try to fend off Amazon? Um, you know, brandless has become a big thing, right, which now becomes a brand. But, <laughs> but uh, what is, how does private label fit in? Because to me, as a marketer, I would think, well, it's a lot more work for me to, to start up another brand, isn't it? Or is yeah. it just saying, I'm Amazon and I can come up with a brand and they'll follow me? What are your thoughts? Yeah.
1: Well, I, I'll be very controversial in what I'm telling you right now. Legacy brands are dead. Global brands are dying, and um, and there's many reasons why. Um, we as consumers have changed our behaviour enormously over the last decade. Um, we become much more local, and the reason why we become local is because multiple reasons why. But one of them is is due to the fact that if there's 7.5 billion people on planet Earth. I will never be number one as a person. And the young generation really feels that they never will be able to get anywhere because they are so far down the rank. So what you do is that you retract back to a tribe, to a smaller group where you can relate to things. That means your local community. Um, Some people even decide to build a wall um, or whatever it may be, it's Brexit. We want to be local because I feel safer. I'm in a community where everyone understands me and I'm not necessarily number zero. I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of doing pretty okay. So because of that, local brands you know, are doing incredibly well. Now, I don't need to tell you Coca-Cola, the world is not a local brand. And everyone knows that. And suddenly there's two things happening. First of all, I, as a consumer, want to support the local community because it's part of my identity. It gives me a sense of purpose. And just remember this, there is an increase of suicide Rates in the UK of 25% among young teens. Oof. Now, the main reason why is because they have no sense of purpose in life. We see similar numbers in the US at the moment.
0: Well, and the um, drugs also with the US. I mean, I drugs in the
1: US, right. it, it, there's a lot of, of really dramatic issues around this. And, and the, the lack of purpose, because also smartphones and social media is, is not really helping that topic, uh, means that they want to support local brands because they stand for a purpose. Coca-Cola really doesn't stand for a purpose. So this is one push which is really important to have in mind. The other push is that that retailers will have an increased one-on-one direct dialogue with the consumer. And therefore, if they're really good at building private label, which they, they by the way are, well, what happens is that why should I pay a premium price for Coca-Cola or Kellogg's or whatever it may be? So if you take uh, Trader Joe's as an example, you'll notice that around 92% of all the products they have on the shelves are private label. And they really are the benchmark in the U.S. for how to do this. But if you take a look at almost any other player up there, you will notice that the trend is going the same way. We we work with a a supermarket chain called Lowe's Foods in the U.S. And um, we just introduced a private label line uh, last year. And already now it's basically almost number one in every category. And the reason why is very simple. We have a purpose, we're local, we have real ingredients, we do not contain, doesn't contain chemicals. It has know, a, 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 the right label, all of that stuff comes together. And where the CPGs of the world they simply cannot deliver anymore. I mean, they're packing the products with chemicals and they, they don't really care about the local community and they are using conventional marketing techniques in order to penetrate the market, which is the end caps and the aisles right. and all that stuff. And But they're not thinking in a different way. So, yes, you will see global brands will die. The legacy brands will die. Of course, not all of them will disappear, but a lot of them will
0: You know, that brings me back to uh, something I say uh, with my clients is I think we're moving back to a time of the pilgrims, actually, in the U.S., meaning, you know, I would just have my one little restaurant and that was enough. And I just took care of my little restaurant. I don't have to try to become an Applebee's or my one little coffee house. I don't have to try to be Starbucks. And people, you know, started, I think, in the States here with craft beer, but it's certainly moving through with uh, a, a definite force. And so I would certainly agree with you. But I wanted to bring you back to... Uh, Coca Cola. Yesterday, I think on your Facebook page, you showed the picture of uh, how Coke is using these product shots—really tight close-up, almost like yeah. in a movie—and yeah. uh, acting like you're taking it off. And I think you mentioned, like, as soon as you saw it, it triggered your hearing.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's actually a fascinating technique, which which um, I don't think a lot of people are aware of, and uh, the the technique. Um, It really comes back to, let me just try to explain this in a funny way. Have you ever tried that you are, you know, when you have your hair cut and that you kind of get this relaxed, tinkling feeling in your body when you hear that sound? Or when some people are, um, for example, um, cleaning your home and you hear this very soft, gentle sound. When you hear that sound, for many people, it gives a special feeling. And that feeling is like almost like a sin-like feeling. Um, and that concept um, is really what Coke has plugged into, what Burger King has been using for some time. A range of different players around the world are using it where they really communicate at two different channels. One channel is what we see and hear in a normal world. And the second channel is really appealing to those sounds which seems to be hardwired into our brain and make us react in a certain way. And and let me just add to that, just so you get a sense for for what we're talking about here. Let me just do an experiment with you and all the listeners. Try to close your eyes right now, and then think about when you were in school, and you had this blackboard in front of you, and you had to write something on the blackboard. You remember those days, right?
0: Yes. Now, then
1: then imagine you have a your long nails, and you're now going to scratch them down that blackboard. Do you feel uncomfortable?
0: My face is already scrunched up.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Now, the reason why that is happening is because we're hardwired to uh, basically fear that sound. You see, when we were monkeys some 100,000 years ago, we would scream when there was a danger. And the frequency of that scream is exactly the same frequency as uh, when you scratch your nails down the backboard, and that gives you a sense of how our reptile brain has really not changed There's certain elements would stay the same, and that's the same with that technique which Coca-Cola and a lot of other players are using right now they're plugging into the hardwired behavior of what we really want to do, even though we don't know we want to do it.
0: Yeah, absolutely it does. And uh, I'm going to go back to biology because um, one thing that I wanted to get your opinion on is you said there are 10 common pillars underlying almost every religion. Sense of yeah. belonging, clear vision, power over enemies, sensory appeal, storytelling, grandeur, evangelism, symbols, mystery, and rituals. Yeah. Are there clues there for retailers who are struggling? Because to me, when I he- see that, I think, oh, okay, so... There's no clear vision at many uh, larger <laughs> legacy brands. I don't feel like I belong when I walk in there. The news is all about they're losing to their enemies. What are your What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think the uh, retailers which are doing very well right now have to plug into three aspects. It is the sensory appeal, so appealing to the senses. Quite often, when I walk into a supermarket, let's say today, it smells of no rotten smell at the entrance because they have the ice machine there and they haven't cleaned the pipes. I walk through the produce, it may smell a little bit there. The butcher's department really doesn't smell a lot. Uh, you really don't have a sensory experience. Now, this is really important to understand. But the reason why I want to go into a retail store is because I want to, you know, be stimulated with ideas, with the, the senses, whatever it may be, If I'm not, why should I? No, why should not just buy stuff online then? So the key differentiating factor is to create experiential store design. The second dimension coming out of religion uh, is, is really for me, sense of belonging. And it's all about community, local communities. Um, I think the reason why a lot of supermarkets are doing very well right now and a lot of stores are doing well is it, because they tap into the local community and create that sense of belonging. And suddenly those stores are more than just a store. They almost become like a replacement of a community center, perhaps even the church or the sports club. So that's well, the second thing. Sorry?
0: Yeah, well, I was going to say that's exactly it. You look at how church, church memberships are declining all over the world.
1: Yeah. I mean, we have and to find
0: it somewhere, right? Isn't that a human thing? We want to have those same needs met, right?
1: Absolutely. And, and I think the, the, the issue here is, and I, um, um, I pushed a, a lot for that, that we need to understand that our community has changed. And because of social media, we don't meet people anymore. Uh, we don't touch people anymore. We don't interact with our surroundings. We don't have neighbors anymore. We don't know who they are. So that creates, again, back to the small data theory, creates an out of balance. And the out of balance means we need to be compensated somewhere else. And I think that's the reason why a lot of young people feel they don't have a sense of purpose in their life. It's the reason why more and more people are going to concerts, they're going to theaters, and even to the cinema right now. It's the reason why people clinch on to Game of Thrones or to... uh, as Star Wars, because these are occasions where we suddenly can have a sense of belonging. And so I think the retailers need to understand that that is their point of differentiation, opportunity. But I also do think a lot of retailers really don't get it. And then the last thing I would say out of the many, many things you can point out here on the list is, is probably purpose, that we need to have a purpose. And the purpose is not just to earn money anymore. The purpose is also to help for the greater good, to help the community to grow, help global warming, whatever it may be
0: like. Right? Absolutely. And I want to go back to your um, uh, talking about experiential retail. So many people now, uh, I was in a retail, I don't know, suit Supply, but in one of their amazing stores, beautiful, well done, well executed. A lot of details are right there. But a lot of people are saying, oh, we're going to put a kiosk in and we're going to have, you know, VR and AI and people are going to strap Oculus on their heads. And I'm like, really, is that experiential retail? Because to me, I wanna feel something when I walk in. I wanna say, that's me when I look at that, uh, that display. I wanna meet somebody with an open heart and they're just curious why I showed up today and then it all just becomes fun. But it seems to me that if I'm still walking into a store, wouldn't you agree like it's, yours, it's probably your sale to lose that I don't have to go to a store anymore, right?
1: Uh, absolutely, you're spot on. And we've done numerous tests having screens in the stores, having all sorts of technology in the store. And I can tell you, time after time, it completely fails. It is two worlds clashing. And the reason why is because I'll tell you two really quick insights here, which is fascinating. One is when you walk into a store, you expect to be interacting with things in a physical way when you watch a screen, you go into a passive mood and it's a very different mindset. So people do not see value in touching things in the supermarket. And by the way, when they touch the screen, they also feel there's a lot of bacterias on it and therefore they hold themselves back from from doing it. Mm. But but the, sec- the second thing is that it's being pushed mainly from the FMCGs or so the CBGs of the world, which believe that you can sort of do a scalable model. So instead of having... A person doing a food demo or where you need labor, why don't we just scale it having a, a screen playing? And so they push it. And I cannot count the number of times where the CBTs uh, for our clients have been pushing these screens out, believing that this is a whole array of answers. And after three weeks, it completely fails. The screen doesn't work anymore people never look at it and all that stuff so you have two forces here you have the old-fashioned industry which believes that an old-fashioned method works in an experiential environment it doesn't and on the other hand you have a consumer was just there in a different moods in a different mm. mindset and they just don't want to go back to the screen because they're transforming into another physical environment
0: right so if you were a brick and mortar retailer you're magically I don't know. Do I want to give you such an awful assignment? You're magically J.C. Penny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so where do you start? Yeah. You know, where do you start? You know, it's it's the the their the customers been so abused, right? Like we hate yeah. you because you use coupons. Now you're millennial moms. Now you're yeah. the older people. Is it, is it come down? I, w- I personally would say marketing is the last thing I would start with, but I'm interested yeah. in your thoughts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's very simple what to do. I'm not saying it's simple to integrate or implement, but certainly the approach is simple. Number one, understand who your customers are. And I think they need to spend a tremendous amount of time with who is their customer base. And again, live with them, shop with them, eat with them to understand how do they look like. And what are their dreams and hopes and desires in their life? I don't think they get that. And if they get it the right way, they will also know what to sell in the store and what not to sell, or if this audience at all is interested in this store concept um, in the future. Once they've done that, the second um, most important thing is really to create a culture. I don't think JCPenney have a culture anymore. I think they are... In those people have been abused so much through so many years yeah. that they don't like the dislike working in there. We know today, and this is a fact, that 80% of a store success is due to what we define as a software. The software is not what you put on a computer. The software is people. The hardware is the bells and whistles and the entrance and the design of the store, and that's only 20%. 80% is due to people. If I get into a place and people smile, and they're engaged, and they're not like robotic, and you can see they love being there, you want to be part of that community. Yep. You want to be part of that culture. And Jesse do not have a culture anymore. Yep. And once you get that right, people will buy almost anything because they want to be part of that culture, which right. people don't have anymore in their lives. So I think that would be the two very simple steps. And then there will, of course, be 200 other steps to follow. But <laughs> if they get that right, then I think they're on the right track.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I think that's the challenge that, particularly when I go into a store and the employees' hard drives have gone into sleep mode, you know, they're in felon pose with their hands behind their back and they're waiting. It's like you're not really here. You've left the building, so you're not adding anything. And someone said, stand at the front of your department and, and take questions. But that's not really it. I was in Portland and the young woman came up to me as I walked in her store. She goes, you ever seen as stupid a chicken as this? And she had some stuffed chicken. And I was like, no, I certainly haven't. She goes, well, feel free to look around. We have much better items than this. And I laughed and I thought, there it was. Thank you. Right. And people were buying and they were happy. And I wanted to go back to one of the stories from uh, Small Data, if you have a little time.
1: Well, I have one minute, so good. we'll do
0: quickly. You... <laughs> Sorry. Oh, well, good. Well, let's just go all the way on. So, um, how has the way you thought about retail changed in the in the past uh, year?
1: I, I think retail is going to be 100% experiential, and and um, you will see, at least in supermarkets, that CBG products, the cokes of the world, will disappear, and you will have restaurants, you will have bars, you will have nightclubs inside supermarkets. Is already happening right now. You will see that. Uh, the the retail stores in general would become showrooms where you explore and where you innovate and where you're being inspired. And it may be that you don't buy anything in that store, but you are being inspired and then you go home and buy that product when you come home. So they're going to be these type of display rooms. And most importantly, you'll see that uh, physical retail will be all about community. And these three factors would basically transform the US and the high street we know today I think we will see in ten years from now that the malls will struggle big way, but I think we'll see the mom and pop stores will thrive in a big way because they remind us about what we had in the past but have forgotten since.
0: And are authentic, and that's what you've been today with me. I appreciate your time today, Martin. Thank you again.
1: You're welcome, most pleasure.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of our second season of Tell Me Something Good About Retail. I'm glad you've been here with me. In the last uh, year, year and a half, we've interviewed 42 thought leaders about retail from small mom and pops to digital brands, to new payment options, And talked about everything returns to merchandising to being successful, no matter what your brand is. We'll take a few months off for the summer because we know you're out there vacationing and we'll return in the fall. If you've missed any, make sure that you go into your preferred platform, whether that is iTunes or Spotify, and you can find other episodes there too. At any time, you can also reach out and send me an email, bob at retaildoc.com. Thanks, and we'll see you in the fall. Thank mm-hmm. you.